Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen P. Wood, EM in Critical Care NP, EMT, Wilderness and Extreme Medicine Fellow, and your podcast host for today's episode of World Extreme Medicine. It's great to have you joining us today. We're thrilled that you are spending your time with us for today's podcast. And today, I'm excited to have a guest, Dr. Alex Taylor. Uh, and Dr. Taylor, you just recently uh, were at the World Extreme Medicine Conference in Edinburgh, Scotland, and that's where we virtually met. That is indeed. Um, I was there virtually representing Adventure Medic. We were thrilled to be invited um, by World Extreme Medicine. It's an absolutely wonderful event to, um, to cover, and I would encourage anybody to partake in it. Well, thanks. I, I was visiting virtually, um, so uh, hopefully I'll get to be there uh, live next year, provided our world is hopefully in a different place. So uh, Dr. <laughs> Taylor or Alex, is it okay uh, if I call you Alex? Alex is fine. Right. Is a, is a trainee emergency medicine doctor based in Bristol and wholeheartedly believes in taking the road less traveled. And in fact, I think that I found you because of your Robert Frost quote. Robert Frost is one of my favorite poets and he actually taught at my high school, although I'm not old enough to have been one of his students. Uh, but his quote is, two roads diverge in a wood and I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. And that kind of interests me in, you know, hearing about, you know, your experience, because I think, you know, people that are drawn to this field, you know, they're, they're unique. There's something about their, their character that, you know, draws them to this, you know, ex to adventure and to excitement and to putting themselves sometimes at risk, uh, you know, for, to help others. Um, you've got quite a resume. Uh, you've been working as an expedition medic since 2016. Uh, you've traveled all over the world, um, and we're going to talk about some of that experience. Uh, you've completed a diploma in tropical medicine and hygiene. You've got an international diploma in expedition and wilderness medicine, and you just completed your dissertation of master's in global health and remote healthcare. How do you have the time to do all of this? You're making me feel I <laughs> when you put it like that, I'm like, who is that person? That person's not me. But um, I think, I think one of the founding features that I would say defines how I structure my career and the career decisions that I've made is that I make time for things that are of interest to me, and I think that's what I would say has made all the difference in terms of my job. I am very aware that you, I know you've had other speakers on talk about the tr the career treadmill. And I think that is, um, it's a very difficult problem to get your head around. You, you know, you enter into medical school, um, nursing school, you know, whatever form of healthcare it is that you're practicing. And there's this sort of career progression that follows and this pressure that comes with that to kind of carry on up the ladder. And I would say, you know, don't be afraid to step off that and follow your interests. And I think that's why I've managed to fit all these things in. And if there are things that you value and you're interested in, you do find the time for them. Um, for me, I guess, like when I was, before I even went to medical school, I um, was lucky enough to fundraise to do a trip um, to Ecuador with my school. Um, 
obviously that's an extremely privileged position to be in to recognize that as well but um just the growth that that allowed me the decision making the independence that came with that and the ability to see new cultures and to kind of self-manage and motivate the team um, were lots of things that I've taken forward into my exhibition medicine practice and they allowed me to recognize the value of being outdoors and working in a team and a lot of those things are very transferable to medicine so I guess I've looked for further opportunities that were similar along my pathway into medicine and that is how <laughs> I've ended up in the situation that I'm in um, if that makes sense. Well let's that does. You, let's talk a little bit about that path, because I'm sure many of our listeners are people you know, looking to get into this field. Um, some of them have, you know, some uh, experience uh, practicing already. Uh, but, you know, I think one of the most important things is, you know, all of us sharing our experience and learning from each other. Uh, you were faced with a very difficult decision early on in your career, and that was whether to attend a Fleetwood Mac concert or to attend a wilderness medicine concert uh, course. And that was really where your career pivoted. That must've been a difficult decision to make. Whereas it was like, so it was a choice of two, of two great things, but I guess that my, one of my kind of key points of learning was that there are small decisions that you'll make in life that you think are small at the time, but will actually have the potential to influence exactly what path your life will take and I I loved Fleetwood Mac my dad used to buy me Fleetwood Mac CDs and I was really looking forward to going to their, their, their concert and then this conference came up um you know and World Extreme Medicine offers you know conferences just like these in all kinds of locations um and I decided to go for that instead and so I sold my ticket and I went to this conference and off the back of that I met so many fascinating people that were taking so many interesting opportunities and so many inspiring people that weren't you know just going straight into their next training job that were going to work abroad that were going to work as exhibition medics and I thought hey this could be something that I could be interested in this is something that would fit with my ideals and something that I could do and from the back of that I ended up on their mailing list and it was that mailing list that then two years later emailed out a job that said come work in our emergency department you can do you know 80% of the rota and 20% of the time we'll give you for your interests in expedition medicine and it was that that led me to a job later in life that ended up with me working in the field so I am very grateful to the comp the conference and I'm also very grateful to Fleetwood Mac <laughs> I didn't go with the conference concert but hopefully at some point maybe <laughs> Okay, so you haven't yet. So you need, that's that's the next thing on your bucket list is going to be Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, I guess if it comes up again, I would go. But then if there's something else that comes up better, I've let maybe pick that decision instead. <laughs> I, I think that's a wise choice. It's a wise choice. So, so that then brought you to uh, New Zealand and you had some real interesting experience there that, again, a, a bit of a non-traditional kind of approach um, can you tell us a little bit about your experience? You know, what brought you to New Zealand and, and what kind of things did you learn from that from that trip and that experience? 
Yeah, so I think I think for anybody considering going to work in Australia or New Zealand, I would really encourage them to go because I I think um, it can seem from careers and jobs that you're in that, you know, putting your career on hold to take that opportunity might not be the best thing or it seems a bit uncertain. You might be very comfortable in the area that you're in, but sometimes you don't know until you've taken that leap of faith what other exciting situations you might be walking into. And that's definitely true with the Southern Hemisphere. Um it gave me a lot more independence. I was able to do some quite diverse jobs and also experience a completely different culture. Obviously, the um, the Maori population have cultural beliefs you have to adapt to in your treatment of them. Otherwise, you just don't get the same response that you would get from a Western patient. Um, I actually took up when I started there um, a psychiatry job, which might seem a bit um, paradoxical for somebody who wanted to work in emergency medicine, is now an emergency medicine trainee. It has proved to be so useful. <laughs> I um, I guess New Zealand has, they grow a lot of their own cannabis in their gardens. Um, there's very high like levels of psychosis. Um, so I was dealing with quite a lot of psychotic and diverse patients. I had to sort out everything from medications to at one point having to arrange for a patient to have their house exercised before they would agree to go home. So it was it was very complicated. It was very diverse. But it was absolutely fascinating. Um, and that goes for subsequent jobs that I had in that country as well. I went on to work in the emergency department. I worked in a minor injuries unit. Um, but it's, it's incredibly, incredibly diverse. And the landscape is beautiful. The people are warm and welcoming. Um, and I really do feel that those experiences benefited me. Um, later on in life in exhibition and wilderness medicine and also in emergency medicine. And I think, you know, you, you raise an important point. Um, I've worked in emergency medicine for over 30 years. I think that mental health and, you know, psychiatry was one of the things that was least covered in our training, but one of the most important factors. I mean, that's uh, in the emergency to that department that I work in. It's an urban setting. It's a community hospital um, with mostly underserved patients, and there's always mental health as part of you know their their disease processes, and I think that's an incredibly important um, you know piece uh, that you can you can bring. And similarly, you know I think we don't often focus on mental health in extreme medicine, um, in wilderness medicine, but it's so vitally important, right, to your to your well-being, especially when you are facing incredible challenges, I imagine, you know, that experience really is helpful. Absolutely. And I think people, when people fill out their initial questionnaires for any sort of expedition, and this is something that I've like really come to learn, um, they don't, they just, they're more likely to disclose their physical health problems than they are their mental health problems. And even their mental health issues or things that they're facing might not be things that they have even had addressed yet. Like they may not have a diagnosis. They may have gone through a traumatic life event and thought, you know what's going to fix this is I'm going to climb Kilimanjaro and that will sort things out for me. And often it's these people that... Um, may struggle a little bit more on the trips or may need a little bit more support and um and i've taken a lot of the skills that i learned from working in psychiatry both in the uk and in new zealand and that has allowed me to adapt to the needs of these people on the trips which is it's been really useful um what i do say and what i would encourage people who are getting into exhibition and wilderness medicine to say to people who are anxious about any of these things and when you're trying to collect that information is that you are looking to optimize them for the trip 
you're not looking to prevent them from going on the trip. You just want them to be in the best condition that they can be so that you can support them on their journey. Um, and that's a that's my my token phrase, if you will. <laughs> no, I think I think that's incredibly important. I think it's something that's often overlooked. We're asking people about their physical well-being, but very, you know, infrequently their mental health well-being. And you're right. A lot of people go on these trips for that very reason. They feel that this might, you know, um, bring them the, you know, this might help them through their depression. It might, you know, help them through their PTSD. Uh, but you spend a lot of time in your own head when you're on one of these trips uh, and you can do a lot of thinking and it's not always, you know, positive. So um, I think that's a real good lesson for us, uh, you know, in, in expedition medicine and extreme medicine to take that into account and to take, you know, physical well-being, but also mental health uh, well-being into account and having that skill set to address it. So that's that's very valuable. I now, completely, the other completely piece, agree. I think. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Please go ahead. Oh no, I was just agreeing with you. I think there's maybe a bit of a time lag. I'm not sure it was uh, really wrong, but I was agreeing. Yeah, a little, little bit of a time lag. That's okay. Uh, so the now that psychiatric experience, I'm sure, was valuable. But you also did a house exorcism. Uh, where did you learn to do this or how did that come about? This sounds like an interesting, uh, uh, little discussion. Oh, so, um, it's just the, I guess it's a good representation of the, the diversity of patients that we would have, um, in New Zealand. And, um, there was, you know, there's that kind of sort of suggestion of, you know, if somebody's had a chronic illness for a long time, they may never fully, you know, they're never going to get fully back to their baseline. You're always just going to get them to the best they can be, if that makes sense. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to function in the community. And that's true from a mental health perspective as well. So um, we um, at one point had a gentleman who just, he just believed that, you know, his house had been occupied by a spirit. And I think he'd, intimately had this belief before and he you know they'd been able to adjust his medications and talk him down but this time he was adamant that the the only way he was going home was if his house was exercised and so they said to me well it's not really conventional Alex but what we'd like you to do is to um, try and sort this out because we need this bed because we have another sick patient waiting to come in and so I went and I had a chat with a patient and I was like okay so what what is this going to you know, what is it that you actually need? And he was like, well, I, I need you to speak to the pastor. And so I took down the name of the pastor and I phoned the local church and they were like, oh, the pastor's very busy today. Um, he's got lots of very important meetings. And I was like, well, the pastor really, really could do with making some time. So I'll phone back in 20 minutes, phone back in 20 minutes. Oh, he's very busy. He's got lots of important meetings. And so I was like, look, we have somebody who holds you in extremely high regard and would really, really like you to visit their house today because there is an evil spirit in the house and it needs to be removed before they can go home. And the lady on the other end of the phone went, I know who this is and I think we can sort this out. <laughs> and so um, we were able to organise for the patient and the pastor to arrive at the house at the same time. And I mean, I don't know what he did. I don't know how it worked. But whatever he did, the patient was ecstatic and was able to go home. So I guess, you know, a part of it is adapting to the patient's needs and the things that are best for them. But it wasn't something that I had been taught in medical school. It wasn't something I'd ever expected to have to organise. But I feel like I would now know how to do that if I had to do it again. <laughs> well, that's an incredible anecdote. And I think... It just goes to show you, you need all sorts of skills to be working 
in you know in this in extreme medicine and in in taking care of people. Uh, and you obviously did what was best for that patient. Um, it didn't have anything to do with your knowledge of you know physiology or pathophysiology. It's just doing what's right. And I think uh, that's another you know real good lesson to be learned. Oh, massively so. Yeah. So you've also, you've traveled extensively. Um, you've been everywhere from Antarctica to the Amazon. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit about how important you feel those travel experiences are to kind of building your skill set in expedition medicine? I think this comes down to one of my um, sort of key beliefs about being an expedition medic, and that is that you have to be comfortable yourself in leading in the environments that you're going to. Um, and I think people have the misconception that that has to come from medically having worked in those areas. But I think so much of that I draw from personal travel, um, be that that I was like lucky enough to go to altitude you know, for, I climbed Kilimanjaro, you know, off my own back personally before I did it as a trip. And to me, that was actually invaluable because it meant that I knew physically that I could cope with altitude. Um, but at the same, with the same kind of caveat, if anything goes wrong on any of the trips that you're on, um, that you're practicing on, then it's sort of planning, um, mitigating risk, knowing how to manage those scenarios are the sorts of things that you will learn if you have independently traveled. Um, these don't have to be like expensive trips. Like I went into railing when I was younger on like literally peanuts. Like I think we mostly lived off croissants, but like, you know, that is partly the, the experience that you get and it is all applicable to you know, if you have an emergency on the trip and you you have like a skill set for knowing who to contact and how to organize for evacuations and it is more transferable than I think people would think. So that would be my my first piece of advice for anybody that wants to work as an expedition medic is do a little bit of personal traveling because it gives you really good insight. No, absolutely. And you mentioned also, you know, mitigation. And I think that's another area that I think sometimes is overlooked in, you know, uh, these expeditions. And just thinking about risk, planning for risk, coming up with with plans. What's your um, kind of approach when you're planning a trip uh, to, you know, mitigating kind of these emergencies? So um, I guess I sort of quite methodically, I'm probably a bit more particular than some, but I like to know exactly what the risk assessment says um, and if that we've covered all eventualities and what our plan is for our worst case scenario. I like to know what our evacuation plan is and where we're headed to, um, what our communications are like with that as well. Um, if I have the chance to, I'll visit the local hospital um, just so that I can see a bit about um, how they function, what facilities they've got. And just because on the ground, you get a bit more of a sense of, you know, how that works than you would from, say, like a list on a website. Um I obviously do the questionnaires that you would do with the participants to make sure that they're all optimised. If I need to, then I'll get permission to speak to their GPs and just delve a bit more into, into that with them. And if there's time, sometimes I'll do one-to-one -one interviews if I feel that's necessary, because as we spoke about earlier, there are things that people just don't disclose on a form that they would 
rather say to you in person and it can be difficult to know exactly when that might occur um and then the last thing that I do I guess like off the top of my head is then the medical kit so um once I know what my clientele are like and um what their health conditions are then I will try and adapt the medical kit to suit their needs to say you know I mean this rarely ever happens but if you have a population that are all at you know mid-20s and below then you're less likely to need GTN if you then if you suddenly find out um that you have you know somebody in their you know mid to mid 60s to late 70s so I would just try and adapt my medical kit around them um to make sure that we're not carrying anything unnecessary but we are carrying everything that might be required yeah and that's I think that's one of the hardest things to come up with which is what do we need to bring? And that that's adaptable. So it's not going to be the same for every trip. There might be some differences depending on the environment, the clientele. You know, there's a variety of different things that might change what you're going to bring. Um, I found, you know, over the years, now I carry less and less. And, uh, you know, you realize um, I like, I don't know if you are into cooking, but there's a guy named Alton Brown who uh, loves, you know, utensils or something that have multiple uses. And I think, you know, that's, that's what I, I like to do as well is try to find something that I can do 30 different things with um, uh, rather than just that one task. So I think you bring up a good point, which is that your medical kit needs to be adaptable um, as much as your people need to be adaptable. Mm. That's uh, very, so very true. I think there's possibly there's no like true place for that and things like splints like you could splint a limb with so many different things available to you and if there is like you know that's probably a key point you'll come away with if you if you're lucky enough to go on one of the wilderness medicine courses um so yeah there's definitely i feel your medical kits do get smaller the more and more you do these things absolutely uh you know speaking of of that are there any red flags that you kind of look for when you're you're, you know, many, many of our listeners um, do, you know, very similar um, things where they're taking, you know, people with or without experience on these expeditions. Are there any red flags that you look for or, you know, that things that worry you about a particular individual? And, and if you come across them, especially when these are, you know, paying customers or this is a planned trip, how do you address that? In the, um, I guess, the politest possible way, if that happens, then my red flag in my head is actually with the company rather than the individual. Um, and that is usually because if the company feels that that person is appropriate for the trip, then have does that person know what they're letting themselves in for? Or have, have they disclosed everything to the company? Have the checks been rigorous enough? Um, have they, do you know that like, I... I I want to know that they've been honest about what people are expecting and that can go from everything to what the company's expecting me to put in the medical kit. I had one organization say to me, oh, this medical kit you've built is too expensive and there's too much stuff in it. And I was like, all right, so um, what kind of things are you looking for? And they were like, oh, this would be a really good model for a kit that we wanted. And I was like, this kit is for the French Alps and we are going to wild China. I was like, those are not the same places and like they do not have the same healthcare access. So I guess I, um, I I still take the view that you can optimize individuals to like to the best of your ability. But if you have too many red flags about your your group that are on the trip, then I would take that back to how has the company prepared and how are they preparing the individuals for the trip? 
Oh, great. That's great insight. Great insight. So you, you know, I do want to get into some more anecdotes because I, you, you, you exercise the house, which is pretty amazing. Um, you've traveled extensively. Um, what are some other anecdotes that you would share that you think our listeners might uh, enjoy and, and kind of have some take home messages from? Oh, um, so I guess they're probably if the the like more interesting ones are all the kind of expedition medicine ones because that is why we do this, isn't it? You know, that's why everybody really enjoys the trips. Um, so I guess my my Antarctica trip is quite interesting. Um, I would really endorse anybody to go to Antarctica or the Arctic if possible. I had always wanted to go. Um, People that work in the UK may know that the predominant or the most obvious way it always seems to get there is through the British Antarctic Survey, which requires currently, I think, an 18 month placement as a medic. Um, if you're lucky enough to get on the boat, I think it might be a bit shorter than that. Um, and I considered that, but I just figured that didn't quite work for me as an option. And I think some of this is about being realistic with your own expectations. And I still wanted to go, but I just didn't want to go for that long. So at that point, I started looking into true companies that took doctors and I ended up um, on a boat with a company who actually spoke at the World Extreme Medicine Conference and I think there was a lady that gave a fantastic talk there that I unfortunately missed but I'm hoping to catch up on. Um, but I ended up with some quite complex situations. I had, you know, a patient who had injured themselves falling off the plane, but it was their, you know, their their last dream was to go to Antarctica and they were like struggling to mobilize around the ship. And, you know, when you're like, you know, you're crossing the Drake Passage, it's very choppy. Like, it's, And these predicaments are the sort of things that can become quite complicated. Um, at one point I had to um, quarantine one of the lead kitchen staff um, because they had been vomiting um, and that went down terribly as you could imagine with a ship where they want to feed you know several hundred people um, this was on you know it was over Christmas so it's, it was very very difficult um, I um, ended up being called up to see the captain actually to discuss what I'd done um, because one of the members of staff was so annoyed that this is the situation. I was like, you know, you have to quarantine for 40 hours. It's not really safe. I don't want a whole outbreak on a ship. Um, and it was this like, you know, he's a big booming like Russian man who'd been like sat in his like, it looked almost like an archaic type office. He had all these like navigational instruments. It looked like he was like drawing diagrams. And, and I went in and I was like, oh my goodness, he's so terrifying. And he, and he stood up in this like booming voice and accent he was like tell me what you have done and I was like I have quarantined this member of kitchen staff because it's really not safe and he was like ah okay and tell me why we have done this and so I explained and then he went ah well the member of staff that's reported you to me he was like well they're very hard to work with so we'll just ignore that <laughs> <laughs> so he was totally on my side and I was so grateful of it so so grateful to him because I was 100% you know when you're called to see the captain I was like I haven't worked on the ship before I'm 100% getting and telling off they're going to throw me off at the port and actually it was fine um but yeah I guess my a significant amount of my anxieties would stem from a trip that I had done before that where there was you know there was I think an outbreak of um an infectious disease, you know, a diarrheal illness from, we think maybe a salad. Um, but yeah, so you have to be quite vigilant of these things. And you have to stand your ground. That's, that's nerve wracking to be, uh, 
to going into the captain's quarters to tell him that you've, yeah, that you've quarantined his staff. And that's, that's nerve wracking, but you stood your ground and, and that's impressive. Yeah, I guess you, it is, because the thing is with the, um, with working in exhibition with Spencer and you are, you know, you're part of the leadership team. You're often part of the senior leadership team, but this isn't always, you know, you might be familiar with the environment, but it's not always your comfort zone. It's not your show, if that makes sense. You're not running the trip. You're just there to offer advice and you're there to assist people. And so occasionally when you have to assert your, yourself, it can fall badly with people um, and they don't always like what you have to hear, particularly on commercial trips. Um, but you just have to stick to it. You have to stick to it. Um, and I had, you know, I've had similar experiences on on a trip um, recently. It was actually UK based, but during the pandemic and COVID has made things so much more complicated. I don't know if you've done any, any trips or things yourself or you've heard of any trips recently that um in covid but um just the levels of precautions that you have to take um and you know you might have people that are trying to hide that they're sick you might have people that have um, you know have tested positive that don't think that's an issue um and then if you're trying to run something like you know say a tv production that becomes really problematic <laughs> um so yeah so just any trip that you're on don't be afraid to assert yourself because it is for the health of the team <laughs> as well as i guess your own kind of professional standing <laughs> yeah no unfortunately i have not been able to go anywhere um i feel that uh i've i've been obviously going to work and have been going out but i feel i feel uh that i've been almost in a prison here for the last couple you know last year and a half uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm excited to hopefully get out and do something soon um, i love winter camping and so uh winter is approaching us here in uh, massachusetts uh, so my hope is to be out there soon and enjoying that. So we are coming up on the end of our time, uh, which has f flown by, and hopefully we'll get a chance to chat again uh, sometime soon. Uh, a lot of our listeners are you know, just starting to get into um, expedition medicine, into extreme medicine. Um, what would you offer them for advice on how to get into the field and then maybe expand on that by, you know, what are some things that you do to, to stay up on that, uh, on that education, aside from, you know, the experiences themselves? Okay, so um, I guess, firstly, um, be passionate and be persistent. So um, you will need to do something like a wilderness medicine course, um, because that will give you the initial qualifications that companies are going to say yes to. If you have kind of a bit of broader experience so something like general practice or emergency medicine that will give you more confidence and your patients more confidence to practice on these trips the next thing i would do is develop any additional skills that are pertinent to the trip so if you're looking to do mountaineering if you're looking to do um kind of polar based stuff if you have experience in those those like environments and that is you know essential um so that can be from travel experience or that can be from other trips that you've done. Um, I then would start contacting companies. And this is where I come back again to being persistent. You may get, you know, 20 no's. You may get like 50 no's. But as long as you keep asking the question, um, then a door will open at some point. And if you take that door, then next time three doors will open and next time five doors will open. And the more people you meet and the more you get connected and the more companies get to know your name, the more they're likely to work with with you again so 
I guess going on from that, my my other piece of learning. So I took a significant number of years out. I did quite a lot of this work. Um, I really enjoyed, you know, a lot of the expeditions I did. But there does come a point when you um. You, you know, you think I do want to go up the career ladder a bit because it does help a bit with your standing on some of the bigger trips. So I'm now in a position that I um, I've gone back into training. And I guess to me, I'm learning how to sell that back to them. So I I'm going on this expedition. I'm going to be the medic. This is also my own learning. I'm also, you know, developing my own leadership. I have to do the risk assessments. I have to assess all the candidates. And these are the things that I'm learning that I'm bringing back to my NHS job. And I think don't be afraid to push that. I don't think going back into training should stop you from doing the things that you're passionate about and that you're interested in. Well, that's incredible insight. I think, you know, the important piece there is that um, you have to be persistent. Uh, you're Especially when you're first starting out um, and you don't have the, the resume, um, it's going to take time uh, to, to build that resume and to build that experience. Um, but it's important to be persistent and it's important to continue learning and you know, there are so many wonderful courses offered, not by just World Extreme Medicine, but many other organizations. Um, and you also learn by doing and by going out on these expeditions and working with the people who have, you know, the experience. So uh, we are close to the end of our time. Um, I wanted to thank you, Alex, for spending your time sharing your extensive knowledge and expertise with us today. Uh, you brought a breadth of experience, a breadth of knowledge. Um, I'm sure people will want to um, contact you uh, to to hear about your your work as well, and we'll include um, some of that information in our show notes. Thank you, listeners, for choosing the World Extreme Medicine Podcast as your source of wilderness and extreme medicine education. For more content like this, please make sure to follow us on Instagram at World Extreme Medicine. Uh, we are also on Facebook at World Extreme Medicine, on Twitter at XPedMed and visit our website, worldextrememedicine.com for a wealth of educational content, job opportunities, and other uh, uh, interesting material on expedition and extreme medicine. So thank you so much, Alex. Uh, I hope we get a chance to chat again soon. Uh, and I hope we get to meet personally in Edinburgh next year. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Thank you all and be safe out there. This is Stephen P. Wood signing off in the World Extreme Medicine Podcast.